Give your attention to this reading of God's word, Luke 13, verse 1. There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And let's pray asking the Lord to teach us from Scripture this afternoon. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word, which is perfect and true. We're thankful that you give to us guidance and counsel in the things of life. We're thankful that we can be strengthened in our faith and taught how better to walk before you. We pray that you give to us understanding as we look at your word. We pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts open and receptive to your message, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we all deal with disasters in life, health, work, family, relationships. In our society today, it seems like we are witnessing profound moral and cultural shifts and declensions even of a tectonic nature. There are political changes, economic changes, and we regularly see news, not encouraging news either, concerning debt and inflation and gas prices, whatever. Global events are not uh, uh, encouraging either, and it's easy to say, what is God up to, and why are the things happening that we see happening around us? Now, this is precisely the question or questions that deal, Jesus deals with in Luke 13. I'll make a number of points on our text. First is that human atrocities happen, verse 1. There were some present at that season, some that told him of Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And so they're coming to Jesus and saying, you know, why did this happen? Here's an atrocity. It's uh, stupid. It's outrageous. Why do these things happen? The question that is uh, supposed is that these people must have been particularly guilty of horrendous sins to face such a terrible judgment. Is this why bad things happen? Now, the figure here is Pilate, and he had a reputation for being heavy-handed and greedy and bloody. He would eventually be recalled to Rome, and we're not sure what happened to him after he went to Rome, maybe executed, maybe suicide, maybe converted. Uh, We don't know. The temple incident, scholars assume, happened because he was trying to appropriate money, and there was a riot, and it was suppressed with bloodshed. There were these Galileans worshiping there, 
and their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. They were cut down by Pilate, and the question that's assumed is, are they worse than other people? Is that why they suffer? So first, human atrocities. Second, natural disasters happen. And so in verse 4, Jesus takes this theme from verse 1 and extends it to another example, this not dealing with a human atrocity but with a natural disaster. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem. And so Jesus doubles down on this issue or problem. The Tower of Siloam was a recognizable structure. Uh, It was uh, close to the Pool of Siloam. Perhaps it was an aqueduct, or maybe it was some kind of holding facility. We don't know. But the collapse of the Tower of Siloam was a known event such that Jesus can give to his audience a specific death total. Eighteen people perished when the tower collapsed. We don't know why the tower collapsed, bad construction, some natural disaster. We don't know who the victims were, maybe prisoners there, maybe workmen, we don't know. But there were some people who assumed, evidently, that these victims must be worse people or worse offenders or worse sinners or culprits than anybody else in Jerusalem And that's why they came to such a horrible and tragic end. And so Jesus introduces this question of a natural disaster. Human atrocities happen because of tyrants. Natural disasters happen. And third, disasters are not necessarily judgments for sin. This is Christ's point in both 3 and 5. I tell you, no, right? Are these Galileans bigger sinners than everybody else because they suffered these things? I tell you, no. Verse 5, I tell you, no. So there's two times Jesus denies this argument or assumption. Were they worse sinners than everybody else in Jerusalem? No. There is, it seems to me, a hypothetical question of, bad karma, right? If something bad happens to you, it must be because you've done terrible things. And so terrible things are an immediate judgment for your misdeeds. Now we know that sometimes in the Bible there are references to public judgments. And so sometimes people reap what they have sown. And so if you read the Old Testament, you can read about the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the on and on and on, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Amalekites, all kinds of people who reap what they've sown. In the New Testament, if you read through the book of Revelation, you'll find all kinds of people who face all kinds of judgments for their misdeeds. My favorites are Ananias, Acts 5.5, and Sapphira, Acts 5.10, who were a public example of reaping the whirlwind for what they have done. 
But Jesus does not want us to think that every time something bad happens, it's because you are being particularly misbehaving. Are they worse sinners than other Galileans? Verse 2. No. Verse 3. Are they worse culprits than others in Jerusalem? Verse 4. No. In verse 5. It seems to me that he wants to discourage people from having a mechanical view of judgments that misfortunes automatically assume God's immediate temporal judgments. And you might remember the poor case of Job who had misfortune after misfortune after misfortune and his friends showed up to say, you must have done something really bad and that's why you're dealing with unfortunate events in life. And uh, through all of this, we're told, Job did not sin even though he had to put up with some friends who were probably well-intentioned, but have missed the boat. Jesus probably also wants to make sure that people are not self-righteous in their viewpoint of disasters. It's too easy to have a selective sense of depravity, that someone who faces terrible issues must be particularly bad or particularly depraved. And then by consequence our own or my own relative innocence. That if I'm not dealing with a big tragedy in my life, it means that I must be doing okay, relatively speaking. And so the point of Jesus, verses 3 and 5, is that disasters are not necessarily judgments for sins. Fourth, God's providence is mysterious. I think the questions that are raised here, one by his audience, one by Jesus, begs larger questions of God's providence. Where is God? Why does he allow this to happen? Why doesn't he fix it? God's providence is mysterious. Turn with me to John 9 because we find a very similar situation with an identical question. John 9, starting with verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this is the same question from Luke 13, right? Here's somebody who's blind. This is terrible. Sin has to be involved. The blindness had to be a particular judgment for particular sin. Verse 3, Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. The point of Jesus is really a remarkable one. The man didn't suffer or wasn't blind because of some particular sin. Rather, the purpose of God was that the work of God might be displayed in this man. You think, well, I wonder how the blind man would take this. He's 
dealt with blindness his whole life. He's been a beggar, probably all kinds of unfortunate elements to his life. Although I think that if you know your life was designed for a higher purpose and was part of God's larger plan, there'd be a great deal of comfort in that, a great deal of consolation in knowing that God's providence extended even over the calamities of your life. My sufferings are purposeful within God's purposes, even if I don't know what they were. And then if we're in, in verse 7, John 9, verse 7, Jesus says to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Now, I'd argue that there is a great connection between Luke 13 and John 9, right? The very same question, why do terrible things happen? Is it because of judgment for sin? Jesus says no. And then here, the man is healed in the pool of Siloam, and Jesus, in Luke 13, raises the issue of a terrible disaster at the Tower of Siloam. Jesus didn't do many miracles in Jerusalem, but this one here at the Pool of Siloam was a big one. And Jesus goes on to talk about how he is the light of the world. And this man, being made whole, being able to see, becomes an example of larger spiritual illumination so that people are made to see the truths of the gospel. And there's a whole chapter dedicated to this man and to his experience. Why did this happen? That the works of God should be made manifest in him. Jesus gives to us here a crystal clear reference to the providence of God. John 11 We find a similar passage here. This is the story of another miracle that's familiar to you. John 11, verse 1, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sisters went unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Now you can imagine people saying, why is this happening? He likes the family. He he likes Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Why is this happening? Why is he getting sick? Come quickly and heal him, verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of of God, that the Son of Man might be glorified thereby. Right? So here you have a circumstance. It's an unpleasant circumstance. Lazarus is sickened and he's dying and he dies. But before he is brought back by Jesus, Jesus teaches that this happens for the glory of God. In other words, in the calamities of life, in the issues of life, God's providence is at work. And as you know, in John 11, Jesus uses this example to teach a larger lesson that I am the resurrection and the life, and if you believe in me, you will live. The Apostle Paul once dealt with an issue of a thorn in the flesh. 2 
Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10. Paul deals this with, with this. He prays for relief. He doesn't get relief. People are probably beating him up over the unanswered prayers. And Paul learns that this is for a larger purpose. It wasn't a judgment for sin, but so that he would be taught that my grace is sufficient for you. So that in all the trials of life, we can learn this lesson of the sufficiency of God's grace. In John 50, excuse me, in Genesis 50, verse 20, Joseph's brothers come to him. Their father's dead. They're nervous about Joseph being vindictive, and they are concerned that it's going to be payback time. And Joseph, reflecting over all the experiences of his life and the misfortunes of his life, many of which were brought on by his wayward brothers, said to them, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. God's providence stood behind the evil that the brothers had planned. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way in chapter 5, section 1, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest to the least by his most wise and holy providence. There is nothing in the universe that is outside of God's control. Every atom of existence is controlled by our sovereign, omnipotent, and omniscient God. And so folks who look at Luke 13 and say, there's some things that are out of control, miss the bigger picture, and it's a picture that Jesus and the remainder of Scripture and the Westminster Standards really point to that God's providence exists, but it can be mysterious and inscrutable and wonderful and glorious. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, Deuteronomy 29.29, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. Even Job, by the end of the book, who wants answers, he suffered so much, he wants answers, and he asks all these questions, and the Lord answers him in the whirlwind and school Job as to how the universe runs, and shows Job his power and his purposes and his sovereign design. And Job says at the end of the book, Job 42, now I know that you can do all things. I uttered things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. God's providence is mysterious and inscrutable and wonderful. Now let's go back to Luke 13. Two other points from our text. Our lives are brief. 
Jesus reminds us of human mortality in both verses 3 and 5. Our lives are brief. Verse 3, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Verse 5 and verse 5 and verse 3 are identical, same message, doubly reinforced. I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. There are repeated statements about human end, that we will perish. The Bible speaks of different kinds of death. There is a physical death. It is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. Or our years are... 70 years, or if by reason of strength, 80, and then we fly away. Psalm 90, verse 10, there's a physical death. Uh, Our days are limited. The Bible speaks of spiritual death. And so in Genesis 2, 17, there was a warning that the day you eat of the fruit, you will die. And Ephesians tells us, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, verse 1, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. So even if we're alive or walking around, having a nice meal and visiting with people and are physically alive apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. That's the teaching of Scripture. And the Bible speaks of eternal death. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, we read about the second death and the lake of fire. And so with this as a backdrop, when Jesus says in verse 3, you shall all likewise perish, in verse 3 and in verse 5, he's hitting right to the heart of our common human condition as sinners we face everlasting death apart from Christ. And and so I'll put that in right now, that with this language of perishing, the Bible also gives us hope and good news. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. The Son quickens or makes alive whom he will. He that heareth my word and believeth hath everlasting life and passes from death into life. John 5.24. The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. John 5. 25. And so Jesus reminds us of human mortality and the coming judgment, but he also tells us about the prospect of life everlasting. Our lives are brief. And my final point, and this is the heart of the message of Jesus, is that calls to repentance include a hope of mercy. Calls to repentance include the hope of mercy. 
I know that Jesus doesn't have the reputation of being a hellfire kind of preacher. We usually consider him to be a, a meek and loving kind of person, and certainly that's true. But it's really difficult to avoid the impact of what he says in verses 3 and 5, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Notice that Jesus makes his call to his audience personal in both verses 3 and 5. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Notice how he moves the discussion from the third person to the second person, you. See, in a question like this, it's, it's way easier to talk about those Galileans, those people from far away who happened to run into a bad experience with Herod, but there are people over there. Or to talk about those people over there that got squished when the tower fell, it's sort of removed from us. But Jesus makes it personal. His call is direct and focused, not speculative and distant. He's not saying, why do bad things happen to extra bad Galileans, if that's the way the question is indeed being posed, but what will happen to you on the day of judgment? Jesus emphasizes repentance. In fact, throughout the Bible you find this emphasized. John the Baptist or John the Baptizer emphasized it, Matthew 3.2. Jesus emphasized it, Matthew 4.17, and here. Peter emphasized it, Acts 2.38. Paul emphasized it, Acts 20.21. There is an emphasis upon repentance, but a call to repentance presupposes a merciful God who will welcome and forgive penitent sinners. If you look at the Westminster Confession of Faith, you will find an entire chapter, a marvelous chapter, dealing with repentance unto life. Repentance unto life is an evangelical grace the doctrine of which is to be preached by every minister of the gospel as well as that of faith in Christ. The divines, I think, suspected that ministers would rather preach on faith than repentance. In repentance, the sinner has a sense of the danger of his sinful estate. The sinner sees the odiousness and filthiness of his sins. The sinner realizes that he has violated the righteous law of God. The sinner apprehends God's mercy in Christ. The sinner grieves for and hates his sin. The sinner turns to God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. And so repentance is a change, a spirit-wrought and motivated change in our heart and our orientation towards God. Now take a look at Luke 3, because there is a segue in our passage dealing with this. Luke 3, verse 5, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Verse 6. 
He spoke also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then he said to the dresser of this vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why encumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, until I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit well, and if not, then... After that, shalt thou cut it down. He was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And here's an illustration of Israel, right? The vineyard owner is coming. There's no fruit. It's time to destroy the fruitless vineyard. And the question is, can't we wait a little more? And the master said, all right, we'll give it a little more time. But if there's no fruit, then it's going to be destroyed. It seems to me that the illustration Jesus gives in this parable directly follows the five verses that we've been looking at. Judgment isn't coming today. You've got a little longer. A call to repentance includes the hope of mercy. Don't let this time slip away. Jesus functions here as an evangelist. It's a marvelous exchange with an audience looking for big questions about why bad things happen. And Jesus turns it on them and says, make sure that you don't die in your sins because unless you repent, you shall perish. December 26th, 1811, There was one of the worst tragedies ever in American history, biggest urban disaster of the time up until that point, when a theater caught in fire on Richmond and burned to the ground and over 70 people perished in the fire. It was just awful. It was in, you know, all the newspapers. It was headline stuff. It was really tragic. And a lot of, you know, rich and famous people were burned up. The acting governor was burned up. A past U.S. senator was burned up in this fire. It was just terrible. Well, preachers weighed in on this a lot, especially with the wisdom of theater going. And um, somebody asked Archibald Alexander, a famous Virginia preacher who, who was at this time serving a church up in Philadelphia, if he would preach on the subject of the Richmond fire. And it's a marvelous sermon. Some of the people in his congregation in Philadelphia were Virginians who were there studying medicine. And they wanted him to give a a true biblical example of this. And so he talks about the Richmond fire, and he said, I'm not going to talk about theater going, although there are probably more profitable things to be doing in your last hours on earth than sitting in some raucous theater event, but that's, that's not my point here. And he lands on Luke 13, 1 through 5, and like Jesus, Archibald Alexander has an evangelistic message arguing that people shouldn't be thinking about those people other there, over there or speculative issues about God's providence, but rather to think about their own hearts and their own condition, 
and their own commitment to Jesus Christ. We believe that God's providence extends over all the earth. And even though we don't know the examples or the reasons for everything that happens, we believe that God's got things under control. <laughs> when I read the newspaper, you know, sometimes I, I think maybe, maybe it might be doing a little more maybe, but we believe that the Lord has things of his world under his control for purposes that we don't understand. But the biggest issue for us is how do we respond to the Lord? Do we respond faithfully? Do we respond in belief? And this episode and the parable that follows it illustrates perfectly the methodology of Jesus in calling people to repentance and faith, looking at the certainty of the grave to come, but also offering the example of hope and salvation and everlasting life as he does throughout the gospel with this simple reminder and promise of hope that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we don't understand why things happen in the world that we do. We see so many difficulties and struggles around us, but we are confident that you are the sovereign God who is in control. We pray that you'd help us to focus on the things of our life and the things that we can control in our response to you. You clearly state the expectations of us, and even in calls to repentance and even in your chastening hand, we see encouragement and hope, knowing that you are a long-suffering God and a merciful Father who extends mercy to those who seek you humbly and in faith. We are thankful for the promise of the gospel that we have in a wicked world, and we're thankful for what Christ has accomplished for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in closing to Trinity Hymnal 365 at the Lamb's High Feast we sing. <clears throat> 